Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is the reading of God's holy word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. At this time, um, I want to introduce our guest speaker for today. Uh, as Un shared during the announcements, the praise and worship team, the AV team, for the past month have been in a time of rest, uh, restoration. They've been gathering to pray, uh, to study, and just take time to reflect on how they can better serve the church. Um, and to round this all off, uh, yesterday uh, they had a seminar um, and they explored the ways in which Though the praise team believe, they, though they believe in the gospel, how in many ways they uh, struggle with uh, performance-driven praise. And uh, to that end, we had a guest speaker come in. Uh, his name is David Bay. Uh, he blessed the praise team yesterday, and he is here today to now conclude and bless our entire congregation so that we also may grow in gospel-centered worship. Just, uh, just a note about uh, Pastor David Bay. Uh, he uh, graduated from Westminster uh, not too long ago, and he's currently serving as the worship pastor uh, at a church in uh, Northern Virginia. Uh, he is also uh, the owner and the founder of a ice cream shop and a tea shop called Bon Matcha, and there's a photo of it. Uh, for those of you who are in D.C., um, go check it out. Um, I went there, it's, it's great, yeah. Um, and um, we had the opportunity of serving the same church together for a few years, so I know him quite well. Uh, he's a great worship leader, and he's here to share about how we can take God from good to great. Good morning, my name is uh, Pastor David Bay. Uh, these days, my last name has been something I have to always clarify with people, uh, because my last name got hijacked into popular lexicon. And so people just think I'm introducing myself as Bay, uh, but I'm like, no, dude, that's that's actually my real name. Um, as Pastor Steve said, uh, I serve at a ministry in Fairfax, Virginia. Uh, it's called Cornerstone. It's the English ministry of the Korean Presbyterian Church of Washington. Um, I have the good 
the, the pleasure of knowing both Pastor Steve and Pastor Walton. I know Pastor Walton from seminary. We came up through the trenches together. And uh, I know Pastor Steve from uh, when we served at the same church in New York. We came through the trenches together uh, up there as well. Uh, I don't know what Pastor Steve is like here. Uh, so if you ever want, like, the dirt on Pastor Steve and some of the reckless things that he's done, like, I'm your guy, okay? Like, I've seen some of the crazy stuff this guy has done. There was this one time, um, it was like, I think it was like Labor Day was coming, and uh, our church was like, oh, holiday? Doesn't matter, office hours, right? And, and they, they put us in the office, and then what they do is they put you in the church, and then they literally lock the door, Okay, so you you can't like if you leave you can't come back in, but you need to be in there because that's the only room that we have to sleep in, right? And so it's me, it's Pastor Steve, it's a couple of other pastors, right? There's like four ordained men in the room, right? There's like a bunch of MDivs, right? There's a bunch of masters level people inside of there, and then we have this idea, right? I don't know if you've ever heard the expression that when a group of men get together, the collective IQ goes down, but. That's exactly what happened, okay? Because we're, we're sitting there, we're like locked in the church office. We're like, oh, this sucks. Like, you know, like, it's like Labor Day. We should barbecue. And then we're like, wait, there's a grill in the youth group room that we use for picnics. And then we go, oh, man, wouldn't it be awesome if we grill on the church rooftop? All right, and we're like, we're not thinking it through, right? Because uh, we're, the plan is to uh, take charcoals and, and, and start the coals in the kitchen basement and then take those hot coals all the way up to the third floor uh, and then set up a grill on the third floor rooftop and then put the coals in there and grill meat, right? And we didn't think through any of that. All we got was, let's have a barbecue. Let's do it, right? And then while we're in the middle of doing all of this, uh, one of the deacons who's in charge of sort of like maintaining the church, he comes through and he's like, what are you doing, right? He sees us setting up the grill and we're like really embarrassed because we got caught, right? We're like, oh, you know, we're just like thinking about having like a little bit of like a barbecue out here. He goes, okay, look, uh, I understand how you feel feel, but uh, that roof is like super flammable, okay? So you're going to set the entire church on fire if you do that. So please don't do that, right? But meanwhile, I'm in the basement lighting coals while all this is going on, right? And no one is giving me any updates or anything like that. And so pretty soon, I've just got this gigantic pot of burning coals, and I don't know what to do with it, right? And so finally, I just like oh, okay, I'm like carrying it around, and then, you know, they tell me, like, we can't do it, so I'm like, oh, okay, and I've got gloves on, but, you know, like, you hold it for long enough, and the heat just starts burning through your hands. All that to say, we left a little, a couple of little burn marks in multiple places in the church, and the parking lot now has a permanent hole in the shape of a pot uh, at our church in New York. Um, and it's, it's funny, because you all know Pastor Steve as, like, this really polished put together, you know, professional, you know, makes David Letterman references. I don't know anybody else who does that, right? He's literally the only guy I know who does that, right? You know him as that, but I know him as the dude who was like, yo, let's have a barbecue on the rooftop, right? So it's, 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 it's a little bit of a, it's a little bit of a dichotomy. So I don't know how much I'm allowed to make fun of him up here because I don't know what version of him you have and I don't know how much I'm allowed to attack that public image of him. But if you ever need blackmail on him, uh, I've got some, okay? Uh, uh, I, I know what it is. But uh, we're here today to talk about uh, the topic of worship. Um, 
I feel an immense amount of pressure because Pastor Steve was like, oh, now he's here to bless us. And I feel like that's very presumptuous. Uh, it, is, it, is, it is my hope that we will walk away together blessed. Uh, if we do not walk away together blessed, uh, you can write a letter to my church and you can complain to them and, uh, for not praying for me hard enough as I was preparing uh, this sermon for you. Um, but I wanted to talk about worship today because worship is this thing that as Christians we all fundamentally agree is this incredibly important thing, right? Like worship is this super important thing in the life of every single believer and yet when we think about it, what does it do? What is the function of worship in the life of the believer? What is its purpose? Is it anything more than a God-given Christian duty? Does it have a function beyond just that thing that we're supposed to do? Why does God command us to do it? So I have no ambition to create like an exhaustive, systematic treatise on what worship is and what it does and what its purpose, but rather my goal this morning is to simply start for you a discussion on the purpose of worship. And so with that in mind, we come to one of my favorite texts on this topic, Psalm chapter 34. So when we read through Psalm 34, uh, and as we go through it this morning, we're not necessarily going to go verse by verse, but rather sort of theme by theme, because you can group and couple a lot of the different verses and chain them together into sort of the same kind of broader categories. And so this morning, I'd like to begin our discussion by asking two questions, and that's really going to sort of uh, set up the framework for uh, my entire message today. Okay, question number one, what we already asked, what does worship do in the personal life of a believer? What function does worship have on our individual personal souls? What is its function? What is its purpose? Question number two, what kind of believers receive the benefits that are given in worship? If worship is good for the life of a believer and it brings about benefits in the life of the believer, what kinds of believers receive those benefits? And are we those kinds of believers? Okay, so two questions. So the first one, what does worship do in the life of the believer? So when we read Psalm 34, we're given a very extensive psalm of praise and worship, right? In the entire psalm, David extols the virtues of God, right? He says those who who, who wait on him are, are satisfied, that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, that he encamps them and he protects them, he delivers them. He is their guardian, he is their shield, he is, uh, he is the one who delivers them from fear, But it's here in Psalm 34 that David also gives us an incredible glimpse into the function and the purpose that worship has in the life of the believer. If you've got your Bibles open, let me encourage you to uh, look with me to verses 1 through 3. In Psalm 34, verses 1 through 3, David says this, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. And it's here in verses 1 through 3 that we're given a glimpse of the function and the power and the purpose of worship. What does worship do in the life of the believer? It does this. It prioritizes, it exalts, and it magnifies the Lord. You see, if you read the structure of the psalm, verses 1 through 3, it's sort of an introduction to the praise and the worship that David is about to give. 
In verses 1 through 3, he doesn't necessarily go into who God is or how great he is. That comes after that. Verses 1 through 3 serves as an introduction. So look with me to verse 1. What does David say? That he will bless the Lord at all times. That the praise of the Lord shall continually be in his mouth. So for David, what worship does is it prioritizes the Lord. It keeps his tongue and his mouth from blessing other things or praising other things. Worship trains David's tongue to prioritize the praise and worship of Yahweh. Well, what about verse 2? What does David say? David says that his soul will make its boast in the Lord. And so the humble can hear and be glad. And here we see that David says that what worship does is that in worship our soul boasts in the Lord. What does it mean to boast in something? It means to elevate it. If you boast in yourself, you're elevating your own status, or you're elevating your own skill, or you're elevating your own ability. So we see that the worship that David is about to give is going to elevate the Lord in his own life. And what about verse 3? David tells us that worship magnifies the Lord. What does this mean? What does it mean to magnify the Lord? What does it mean to magnify anything? It means to make it bigger, right? To magnify something is to make something larger than it was before. That's what we use a magnifying glass for. When something is too small and you can't see it properly, And when you need to see something better, what do you do? You magnify the image. You magnify the thing. So here in this introduction to praise and worship, David gives us a glimpse of three things that worship does in the heart of the believer. It prioritizes, it elevates, and it magnifies the Lord. So that brings us back to the original question. What does worship do? What is its function and its purpose on our souls? I think we can take these three ideas of prioritizing, elevating, and magnifying and put them all under the same umbrella. What worship does is it bestows the blessing of reorientation. Worship reorients our souls, our hearts, and our minds to the Lord. Because no matter who we are, we live in a broken world. And because we live in a broken world, it's constantly messing around with our perspective of what we think is reality and what is reality. You see, as we go through life, we experience all kinds of disorientation. If you ever want to see what that looks like in action, take somebody who's not from this area and have them read Susquehanna. Right? or any of the other road names in Philadelphia. Right? That, for me, is one of the funniest things in Philadelphia, that like, unless you have like, a uh, minor degree in Native American names and studies, you're going to have a hard time uh, navigating around. Right? Because people are like, oh, the uh, Okaquan, right? Uh, uh, the Suskana, Suskiana? Right? I don't really know how to say that. But as we go through life, we experience disorientation of all kinds. And sometimes, friends, the disorientation that we experience is very vivid and very sudden and very clear. It could be a period of sudden hardship, maybe a tragic and unexpected loss of a loved one. Maybe it's a sudden pain of a breakup or the crushing defeat of a failure. You see, we go through life 
experiencing all kinds of hardship. And these hardships can disorient us. They can make us feel as though our problems are enormous and very pressing and very near. And at the same time, it can make God feel as though he is so distant, that he is so far, that he is so small. In these seasons of disorientation, there can be moments where God can feel as though he is absent or perhaps unwilling or perhaps unable to help us in these moments of our need. There are moments in life when it feels like our problems or our weaknesses or our addictions or our sins that we struggle with are impossibly large. Oftentimes, we can look at ourselves or look at our lives and become overwhelmed with the number of flaws and problems and mistakes that we see in ourselves or that we see in our family or that we see in our church or that we see in the people, those around us. And it seems like we have an infinite, uncountable number of defects and problems. And in these moments, it can feel as though God is not able or perhaps not willing to help such a broken people or such a broken situation. And if you've ever prayed for anyone or anything to change for more than a year in your life, you probably know what that feels like. To pray and to pray and to pray and to pray and to feel as though there is no hope for change. Because why would a good and gracious God want to help such a messy and broken people? But sometimes this kind of disorientation is not vivid. It is not sudden. Sometimes the disorientation can come subtly and slower. It's that small sense of shame or envy or fear that can eat away at you little by little, day by day, sap you of your strength and your hope and of your courage. Sometimes that disorientation comes in the form of that small fear that whispers into your ear, things are not going to work out well for you. Maybe this person is going to hurt you in the future, or maybe this situation is not going to work. And every day, little by little, it whispers fears to you about your future, that maybe your children will not be okay, or maybe this situation is not going to work out, or maybe this job is not going to stick around, or maybe these bills or these finances or these mortgages or this health is not going to hold up. And sometimes, little by little, it disorients us. But friends, it's not just hardship that can disorient us. Sometimes the very thing that can throw us off is success. The pride and joy that can come with a sudden promotion or advancement. That feeling that everything is going right and nothing could go wrong. Sometimes success can lure us into a false sense of comfort and complacency. And similarly to fear, it whispers to us not that everything is not going to be all right, but rather it says everything is enough, that you already have all that you need, and you don't need uh, God or his gifts, that you already have all that you need, and you will continue to have all that you need so long as you continue in the way that you're going now. So... Uh, as Pastor Steve mentioned, I uh, also own and operate like a small cafe. Um, and so because of that, I'm really into cooking, but I've always been into cooking. Um, and I'm constantly working on new cooking experiments and projects. So like, I'm always just sort of starting new projects. So like, 
I, like, I'm like, oh, let me try making pizza dough. And so I'll make a ton of pizza for like a couple of months. Uh, when I was living in New York, I went through like a mandu and dumpling phase uh, where I would just, uh, Mondays were our day off. And so what I would do is I would just buy a bunch of supplies on Sunday night. And then Monday for like four hours, I would just like make dumplings. But then when I did that, it's like I live in a studio by myself. And then by the end of it, I have like 900 dumplings. And I'm like, oh, I don't know what to do with all of this. And so if you ever went to my house, like my refrigerator was just like full of dumplings because like, I was sort of in this like crazy sort of like rain man kind of phase. Um, but one of the things that I've been working on lately is soba noodles. Uh, I've been spending a lot of time in my kitchen trying to make uh, soba noodles from scratch. And it's really freaking hard, okay? It's like super difficult, right? Like I knew it was gonna be hard, but I was like, I've made pasta before, right? So it'll probably be like a similar thing. I've made bread before, so like, you know, I know how to knead things. Uh, but it's really different because there isn't much gluten in soba. Uh, I probably shouldn't get into all of that, but it's hard, okay? It's, it's really hard. And I'm still not really good at it. And there's a lot of different steps that I suck at. Right? Like, there's a lot of different phases that I'm terrible at, and I expected it. Because, like, in order to make soba, you have to knead the dough in a really specific kind of way, and I knew I was gonna be bad at that. That's okay. I was like, I am not, like, you know, I'm watching documentaries of these soba masters, and they're like, ever since I was seven, I was raised in a soba you, right? And I'm like, oh, that's not me, man. I've been doing this for like seven hours, and that's about it. Like, that's definitely not me. And so I knew I was going to be good at that. And the other thing about soba is that there's no set amount of water that you're supposed to put in. It depends on what's the humidity level for the day and what's the temperature for the day and how much hydration you put into your dough all depends on that. And, you know, I was like trying to figure out how you're supposed to do it. And there was this chef and he was talking about it. He goes, you just have to know. And I was like, that is so unhelpful, man. That is the most worthless piece of advice you could have ever given me. And I knew I was going to be really bad at that. But I knew it was going to be really bad in a lot of different things. But you know what I didn't expect? I didn't realize that I was going to be so bad at cutting the noodle once I made it into a dough. Because what happens is you make the dough, you fold it into sheets, and then you've got to cut the noodles. And so what happens is my first few noodles are usually right about the correct size. But what happens is gradually, little by little, the noodles, they start to change in shape and size. Sometimes they're thicker than they should be. Sometimes they're thinner than they should be. Sometimes, you know, they're supposed to be one even straight line, but it's like fat up here and skinny down here. But those changes are, are so subtle and gradual with, with every slice of my knife that I don't even realize that they're different until I pick them all up to put them in a bowl. And as I do, and as they all sit in a bowl together, I suddenly realize they aren't even the same size. Some of them aren't even the same shape. So what I've found that I need to do is uh, my first couple of noodles, I have to cut them really carefully and make sure that I have them right. And as I'm going, every couple of noodles, I have to recheck on my original reference. And I have to make sure that as I'm going, I'm maintaining this original reference point. And friends, that's what worship does for us. It reorients our perspective of who God is. Because when trouble comes, when problems come, it can disorient us. Sometimes in a really hard and sudden and vivid way, and sometimes in such small ways that we don't even notice that it's happening. Because when problems rise and hardship comes, God can feel so small in comparison to our problems. 
But you see, things like worship, like we see in verses 6 through 7, reminds us that God is bigger than the problems that may surround us or the trials that may face us. You see, worship magnifies God. That our problems may seem so large and God may seem so small, but what worship does is it reorients our perspective. It fixes the image for us. And it reminds us that not only are our problems not as big as we think they are, but God is far bigger than we remember. Worship reminds us that God is the one who encamps and protects those who fear him, the one who delivers them from their troubles. When struggle comes, we can feel that God is distant. And maybe you feel like God is distant because we are weak. And the way that usually sounds in your own head or in your own heart is when you say things like, if only I prayed more, or if only I had deeper faith. What's wrong with me? But worship like we see in verse 18, reminds us that God is not far, but rather he is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. Friends, this morning, in what ways has your perspective been disoriented? In what ways has your vision of your life and your reality and who God is been distorted? What are the lies that we've come to believe about ourselves or our problems or our successes? When we come into this place, we come in here bearing all kinds of burdens, all kinds of fears, all kinds of crowns, all kinds of pride. But what worship does is as we confess and proclaim who he is and what he's done and what he's doing for us, it begins to reorient us. It begins to adjust our priorities. It begins to elevate him and his status and his authority and his position in our lives. And it begins to magnify him and help us to see that he is bigger than our fear. It reorients us to our own situation and our own struggles, reminding us that even though our problems may seem insurmountably large, and though our sins or our weaknesses may feel innumerable, our God is the one who knows even the number of the stars in the heavens, and he is large enough to handle our every struggle and our every situation. You see, worship provides us with the cure to our disoriented state of being, that when our problems feel big and our God feels small, worship is the thing that corrects that lens and fixes that perspective. And as we worship, we are reminded of who he is, And what he has promised, that he is a stronghold in the midst of trouble, that he is strength in the midst of weakness, that he is comfort for the weary and the brokenhearted, that he is shelter in the midst of a storm, and that he is the strength to walk the righteous path in the midst of wicked temptation. And that brings us to our second question. So if that's the benefit that worship can bestow unto the believer, what kind of believer receives those benefits? And David talks about it at length here. David talks about the benefits that worship brings and the benefits that God gives to believers at length. Right? And we had just talked about it. He's a stronghold. He's a comfort. He's a shelter. That those who look to him will find plenty in verse 8. That they will not lack. That they will be satisfied. In verse 5, that those who look to him will never be ashamed. But it's in verses 15 to 18 that David really sort of encapsulates and captures the image. What kind of people receive the blessings of worship? The righteous. The righteous. 
Because you see, the evil don't receive the blessings of worship. They don't receive blessing when they come and worship. They receive judgment and wrath. We're told that those who do evil, the Lord's face is against them. We're told again and again and again in this psalm, the same refrain, that the Lord is for the righteous, that the righteous will look to him and they will not be dismayed, that the righteous will look to him and they will be satisfied, that the righteous will look to him and he will be their stronghold. And friend, here is our problem. If we want to receive the blessings of worship, if we want to be reoriented towards God and receive the blessings that come with that reorientation, we must be the righteous. But this is a problem because you and I are very often not very righteous at all. that more often than not, we're the wicked that David warns of in Psalm 34, the ones whose lips speak deceit, like in verse 13. This morning, friends, the hard truth is this, that the blessings of God are only for the righteous of God. And that's not who we are most of the week. Because oftentimes our disorientation can lead us to forget who God is and to walk down paths of sin. So what hope is there for us this morning? If the blessings that come with worshiping the Lord and being reoriented towards him only come for the righteous, then what hope is there for unrighteous people like us? The gospel of Jesus. And that's why it's good news. What does it mean to receive the righteousness of Christ? It means that today and tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day and for all the days of your life, God will count you as righteous and bestow upon you the blessings that go to the righteous. He will keep your very bones so that not a single one will break that though you might struggle with weakness and wickedness, the gospel says you will receive the blessings of righteousness. And so because we have that righteousness, when we approach the Lord in worship, he becomes a stronghold to us rather than an enemy and an adversary. Because we receive and live in the righteousness of Christ, his face becomes set for us and not against us. And so Sunday in and Sunday out, we can enter into his sanctuary with hope, with joy, and with confidence, knowing that as we gather together and as our perspectives are once again corrected back to where they should be, that as our problems and our regrets and our shames and our mistakes are put back to be in their rightful place. And as God is elevated and magnified and prioritized back into his right place, we can have confidence that it will be a blessing to us. Because we stand and gather here together in the righteousness of Christ. 
And that's what we hope to do every week, to come together as broken people in need of reorientation, and together in the singing of songs, and the reading and receiving of his word, and the giving of offering in the fellowship of his people, so help reorient one another towards the reality of who our God is and what he has done for us in Christ. Let me invite you to take a moment to pray with me as we close.